Welcome to the War Podcast. Sounds okay. Sounds okay. All is good. Um, I think we're going to kick it off now. Okay. Hello and welcome to the War Podcast. Um, for today's uh, session, we have David Katz. David has been a Foreign Service Officer for the United States government uh, for a long time with a long history of um, experience in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and is today here with us. Uh, and we're going to talk about different issues that pertain to Afghanistan, to David's experiences in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and how things have potentially shaped his opinions and expertise since then. David, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Well, I, uh, Noid, as you said, I was a career foreign service officer. I served with the Department of State for uh, about 31 years. I entered the foreign service at age 35. Uh, after completing a, my education, I got a PhD from the University of California at Los Angeles, and that PhD uh, was in the field of anthropology, and I was very fortunate that I had a, 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 a training ship. It, it basically, it was a scholarship which allowed me to go and do anth ethnographic research, and I chose for my research site Afghanistan. And so I can I spent two years conducting ethnographic research in uh in in what is now Nuristan province. Uh I lived in the Ligo Valley for 16 months and did my my PhD dissertation based on that research. And uh after I finished my dissertation and got my doctorate degree, then I was hired by the Foreign Service at the age of 35, which is a bit older than uh, most of the people who come into the Foreign Service. Uh, but I had a 30-year career, and with the Foreign Service, you're obliged to retire at the age of 65, uh, whether you want to or not. So Now, you certainly have had a very stellar and a very, uh, if one might say so, eventful career being at the right time at the right places or uh, some people the wrong places <laughs> but um it's it's a very interesting when i read your uh, bio i was like uh david you've, you've lived a good life so uh, with that i'm going to just take us back to the afghanistan's landscape you've been there you've seen afghanistan go through multiple changes multiple regime changes multiple changes of uh different countries being there different players being in power and different mentalities, perspectives, and ideologies being in power. What has been your experience like since the beginning up until recently? Well, I have to say I, I, I arrived during the time of uh, Daoud, Sadar Daoud. I actually arrived at Jeshin, and I arrived at a particularly I don't know whether it was a good time or a bad time, but this Jeshin was in 1975, and at that Jeshin, 
the power went off in Kabul. And the reason the power went off in Kabul is because Ahmad Shah Massoud and Gulbuddin Hekmatyar had launched their first little operation and they took down a, a power pylon uh, up by the Panjshir. And so uh, everybody in Kabul, everybody, uh, they were all quite concerned. What is going on? How serious is this kind of insurrection? It was a very small insurrection. Actually, it was kind of interesting because the British ambassador was, because it was Jeshin, it was a holiday for the diplomats. And so the British ambassador uh, and his wife and a, a fellow by the name of Louis Dupre and his wife, they were up uh, going and visiting the, the Panjshir and their Jeep, uh, their Land Rover was actually shot at by uh, these small group of insurgents and had a bullet hole to show for it. Nobody was injured. So I arrived during the time of Daoud, and that was seen as, uh, I mean, he had taken over after he, he had ousted his cousin and brother-in-law, Zahir Shah. And uh, at the time, Daoud was trying to distance himself from the Parchamis, the 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 element of the Communist Party of uh, the Hulk, uh, excuse me, the, the PDPA, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. So he was trying to distance himself and he was trying to set up a republic. Uh, he didn't get very far, but it was kind of a, a, a liberal time. Uh, it was a time where the influence of Iran was extremely great in at least in the cities of Afghanistan, because that was the time of the Shah, and the Shah and, and Iran was producing a tremendous amount of Persian language, video, magazines, books, and so the influence of Iran was extremely significant there. Now, Daoud was pushing Pashto, uh, but it was, I mean, the, the elite, the educated class was very, very focused on the material of the culture coming out of Iran. So it was a very, very liberal time. It was a time also in the mid-70s, this was a time of the hippies. And Kabul, Afghanistan, Kabul and Afghanistan was on the route of hippies traveling overland from Europe through Turkey and Iran and through Afghanistan. They would usually spend quite a bit of time in Afghanistan because the hashish was uh, available and cheap, and there were a lot, and the Afghans were extremely tolerant. Uh, so it was a very open time, and uh, I was also very fortunate to be at a time when uh, the Afghan government was quite open to allowing people to do research. And so there were a lot of people from a lot of countries. There were Americans, Germans, Austrians, uh, British people, all who had the opportunity to do research of one sort or another in Afghanistan. Uh, so that was a very, very good liberal time. And of course, then with the 1978 and the uh, and the and the of Daoud, then things became mm -hmm. very, very bleak. And for the next <laughs> until uh, you know 1991, it was a very bleak and depressing depressing period. Uh, and watching the suffering of the Afghans uh, as they, both the people who were in the country and the people who fled as refugees, it was a very, very, very painful time. Uh, then, of course, the chaos and the confusion of the 90s and after the after the Taliban in 2001, once again, it became a very, very hopeful time for the Afghans. And I think there's also a time that we were quite, I was quite uh, upbeat about the prospects for Afghanistan to go and resume the path that was on before the uh, before the communist revolution uh, and for the 
opportunity for Afghanistan to become a modern uh, country, a modern government with a modern government with uh, giving to the people the rights and freedoms that they certainly deserved and certainly were entitled to after having suffered so much for so long. And so it's been like a roller coaster. There have been ups and downs. And uh, I mean, certainly for me as an outside observer, but somebody who's been deeply interested in Afghanistan, but you know, certainly nowhere near the ups and downs that the Afghan people have had to gone through during all that time. Oh, no, definitely. I do agree that it's been uh, quite a ro roller coaster for as long as I have lived, as long as you've lived, and as long as we've heard stories. Um, something you mentioned um, sort of um, was very uh, interesting to me, uh, the blowing up of the pylons, the electricity pylons. Now, I remember that was one of the things that we had to endure back between um, 2017 and onwards to 2021. Um, so putting that on as a, back, a backdrop, my question is, um, what do you see? Where do you see the similarities between the Mujahideen and the Taliban of pre two thousand one and the Taliban of post two thousand twenty one? Like there are arguments that they are basically the same uh, ideologically driven group with different branding, with different names, with different levels of tolerance, and um, also different levels of tolerance, so to speak, and the ability to adapt. Do you see any similarities? And if you do, what are your thoughts on it? Well, going back to the mid-1970s, when I, going back when I first went there and there were the, the first uprising, the people who had been who had formed what subsequently became the Mujahideen in the 1980s, uh, people like Ahmad Shah Massoud and Rabani and Sayaf and Hekmat Yar, these were all, these were, the focal point for those people primarily was Kabul University and the Faculty of Theology at Kabul University. These were all uh, educated, quite quite sophisticated people. I mean, you know, some of them, uh, Sayaf, and uh, uh, and Rabani were were on the faculty, uh, theology faculty. Uh, Masood was a student. Hekmat Yar was actually a mechanical engineer. But you know the the core of those people were highly educated people. And then when 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 Dawood came in, uh, they fled to Pakistan and they affiliated with the Jamaat Islami of Pakistan, which was also a it was quite a sophisticated outfit in terms of Islamists. Uh, they were tied in with the Ehwanis of, 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 of Egypt and whatever. And so these people were educated and sophisticated uh, as much as they were Islamists. They also were educated and had an understanding of the world and the complexity of the world. Of course, after the Soviets came in, and the uprising became much broader, then you had other kinds of people joining, you know, who became Mujahideen, who were people who had all, from all kinds of backgrounds, including people who were coming from the countryside who had, had far less education. But the, you had the seven, you had the seven uh, Sunni parties, and you also had 
uh, Shia parties, and, and these people, these parties were all led by people who, who were sophisticated. Uh, they were sophisticated uh, people, uh, as opposed to I think what happened with the Taliban is the Taliban were formed by a lot of people who were fleeing Pakistan, fleeing to Pakistan, and many of these people were educated in the madrasas of Pakistan, including Hakania was, you know, one of the one of the big ones, but a variety of different madrasas. And they were, I, I don't like, to, I don't know the word sophisticated is not the right, is not the appropriate word, but these people had a lot less, uh, they had a more restricted vision and were more tied into kind of the Islam of the villages, the Islam that these people experience growing up and treating that as the is as 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 what Islam was. And so I found that I think that those people, uh, the the Taliban, both the the Taliban coming in the nineties uh, and certain were were less sophisticated. And I think we saw that in terms of their very strict rules about like beard length and you know dress and these kind of things they were very 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 dale bondy in in those kinds of restrictions and and, and characteris characteristics of their society i think the taliban now because most of the people who are the taliban leaders now have spent a good chunk of their time for the last 20 years in Quetta or in mm -hmm. karachi uh, you know, and, and had had much more exposure, not only to kind of the outside, the urban centers of the outside world, but also the world's a kind of different place with, with, you know, they all have their telephones. And so they all can go and have access to the Internet and all these kind of things. And so I think relative to the Taliban in the 90s, these people are more understanding uh, that they cannot simply try to impose on Afghanistan the Islam of the villages that they grew up in and that they treat, they viewed as the true Islam. So more sophisticated, I guess I would be a way to describe it, but I think it's, it's sophistication perhaps is not exactly the proper term for it. More world-wise, more aware of the fact that they just can't get away with things. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who had been in 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 uh recently in Kabul to a wedding and I asked him I said you know are the Taliban enforcing they used to have this thing during the 1990s where the Taliban would go and put their hand on the beard of somebody and if the beard wasn't longer than the fist then they would the these people would would be in trouble all of that is gone away and and this gentleman told me he said I went to this wedding of my niece I believe it was or or, or nephew or whoever and uh you know i went in a western suit and i felt no concern about going to the wedding in a western suit and coming back in a western suit and certainly during the 1990s that for for afghans that would have not been acceptable not only was that were they not allowed to were they, did they not dress in western clothing clothing but they were also very very careful about the length of the 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 uh, shawar kameez kind of things it had to be the appropriate length otherwise uh they would be in trouble so i think you know i i guess you can say that they're a bit more so more tolerant than they were in the 90s <laughs> although certainly 
recognizing the massive ways that they are intolerant and 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 you know abusive in many ways uh that cannot be overlooked of course no i uh, there have been arguments about this about engaging with taliban about how they are you know um in a way open to engagements open to negotiations open to uh basically opening up the country to further their own agendas and at the same time they have like as you mentioned they have their multitude of uh abuses of detainment of torture of killings um one would one could argue that this is normal in a very you know looking at it a very objective way when you win at a war you of course you have your own way of dealing with the enemy so to speak and this war has been going on for a long time. It's been going on for generations where people have lost, you know, family members, brothers, fathers on either side of this war. Um, the question that I have always had, and it goes back to what you said earlier about the change in the in the level of sophistication between the two groups, is do you think it's possible that the level of the disparity between rural and urban life in itself could be considered a cause for this continuous friction between the way that the religion is viewed in the villages and in rural areas and also the way it's viewed in the urban areas. And I'm asking this, you know, uh, because I know you love anthropology and ethnography. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting little anecdote. Uh, when I was in the mid 70s, when I was uh, going to do my research, I developed a little questionnaire and I was interviewing these people in these 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 places where I was conducting my research. And one of the questions was about their attitude towards the city. Uh, you know, they 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 anybody who lived in these remote areas, they would welcome the opportunity to go to the cities and to stay with their relatives who happened to be living in the cities and be eating good food and sleeping on uh, good cushions and, 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 and availing themselves of kind of the, the what the cities had to offer, offer. But there was also a fundamental view that basically the cities were hotbeds of immorality and the things that were destroying or damaging Afghanistan were entering into Afghanistan from the outside world through the cities. And, and I think this view was very, very widely held. And, and there's also an interesting view, I think, in the cities, there was a view that basically the virtue of uh, people who lived in the cities would look around at the chaos and confusion and traffic and, you know, bad you know, the Jewies that had the dirty water in it and the bad, the cars that were polluting and the crime and all the kind of things that are characteristic of urban centers. And they would basically say that the true, true essence of Afghanistan is in the countryside and the villages, you know, and that is that is where Af Afghanistan really is. And that to the extent that we've kind of come away uh, distance ourselves from that, that kind of also is a sense, uh, accounts for what our problems are. That didn't stop the people in the urban areas from also going and looking at the people in the countryside and say, look at these people in the countryside. They're dirty, 
they are living the way that our great our grandfathers lived they aren't able to pull themselves up from the uh, with, with their own bootstraps and so if they live the way they live and if the children die uh, of illnesses and they drink dirty water they've got nobody to blame but themselves and so there is a certain ambivalent attitude uh towards people in the cities towards the countryside a romantic idealism of kind of this the village but also a sense that these people are you know unable to go and bring themselves up so i think that there's fundamentally always kind of been this kind of attention and i think it also becomes manifest in in in, in the religion i mean once again you know we can harken back to the taliban in the 90s where, you know, once again, the Islam that they were trying to impose on the entire country was the Islam of the villages, and particularly the villages of the southern, I think, of the Pashtuns, uh, Pashtun villages of the south. I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with that culture whatsoever, but certainly when you try to impose it on a place like an urban center, it, uh, it doesn't work so well. Uh, and I think, once again, you have in the cities, you have educated people who are tapping into uh, various trends in Islam. They're, 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 they're reading, they're accessing information, they have better connections to Islamic trends elsewhere in the world. And so I think that there is a different kind of Islam to the extent that I understand it. But, you know, there is this fundamental tension, and, and I think it's interesting to see how the Taliban, even these Taliban, tend to go and be less tolerant of the kind of the, the latitudes of values and beliefs that are totally acceptable within Islam, like, let's say, for example, with respect to women working and these kinds of things, you know, or women or girls uh, and women being educated, you know. Why are they going and doing these kinds of things? I think that there are a lot of explanations, but one of the explanations could be, well, you know, our traditions say that women basically should stay in the house and do these kind of things, and it isn't appropriate for them to do that. And that's really, I mean, to the extent that that has any basis at all, that harkens back to a rural kind of a lifestyle that, you know, really doesn't work either in the 21st century or in urban centers. I, I I think I agree with you because I think from what I see and my my experience has been is that we've lacked evolution, we've lacked development in our uh, in what we know in our beliefs and our uh, education. We've been stuck with an education that's so out of date that it just keeps you back in history and it never lets you, um, you know, develop critical thinking. It never lets you develop your own way of thinking and analyzing things and deciding things. In my personal experience, what I have had is people, um, I've had to deal with this two very uh, different ways of thinking within my own family. I've had the people in my family who've been pro-education, pro-development, you know, development, pro-advancement, pro so to speak, and you know, evolving, going beyond what we knew when we were living in villages and everything. And I, at the same time, I have people in my own village who think, think of me as an infidel because I don't subscribe to their beliefs. And, you know, there have been times when we have had good relations, but you could always see that, that tension. You could always sense that tension that, you know, they never will accept you as one of their own because to them, their way of life, their tradition is all that matters. And at times 
this tradition that they have, and it's, I mean, I've seen it. I'm, I am from, um, what would you, what, would, what, what you would call somebody who is both, you know, I'm, I'm a hybrid. I've got the Pashtun blood in me and I've got the Tajik blood in me. Father's from Kandahar, mother's from Panchir. Now that kind of combination, you get either the best of both worlds or you get the worst of it. And I got the worst of it because in my village in Kandahar, I'm considered an infidel. And I am against the Mujahideen. I've always been against them. And I've talked about it and I've said things. And I'm anti-Talib. I've always been since I, as long as, since the day that they came in Kabul in 96 and they beat me up. That's my first ever memory of, Afghan, uh, of Taliban. I was 11 years old. They came in um, in their pickups and I was wearing, um, I think I was wearing sweatpants. So they come in and like, you, what are you wearing? I'm like, it's none of your business. And, and I'm 11 years old and I think of myself as this badass who can beat up anybody. I get beat up, obviously, but that's the first memory I have. And the reason they beat me up was not because I said something, but because of what I was wearing, something that was foreign to them, that something that they didn't understand what it was. And that lack of understanding, that lack of tolerance, that's what's been causing this tension going forward. And you're right about that, that... We do have the, we've always had that sort of um, preset um, perception about the village people, so to speak. They're the idiots, the ignorance, the illiterate ones. And on the other hand, they think of us as their sellouts, the infidels, the ones who sold their souls to the devil so that they could be rich and live in, you know, in a more fancy life. But Kabul itself, I've seen people come from villages and get assimilated into Kabul lifestyle and change and evolve. And, you know, uh, Mujahideen are, you know, a prime example of it. You remember, you know, you've been involved with Kabul, with Afghanistan for a while. You've seen the early days of Ahmad Shah the early days of Fayyim, the early days of Sayaf, and all these other people. They all changed. They, you know, adapted to life in Kabul. And that to me is, that to me shows the power of Kabul. Problem is, it just never lasts too long. Sorry, I digress yeah. a bit. <laughs> you know, I, I think an interesting thing that I don't really have any insight into, but I'd be interested, I think it'd be an interesting indicator is what is the attitude now in, like, let's say, uh, in, in the Department, School of Theology at Kabul University or whatever, towards, say, Jamal Din al Afghani? Mm-hmm. You know, he was a person who. I think throughout, uh, certainly going back to Amanullah's time and during, you know, he was seen as a modernizing Afghan, you know, and to what extent, and and, and there is a whole, I mean, you know, once again, it, it, you can go and say al-Afghani and that trend, and you can also say with the Ikhwanis and the Jamaat-e-Islami of, of Pakistan, I mean, these people were they were trying to go and reconcile one way or another Islam with the modern world. And, uh, I mean, al-Afghani was somebody who was highly venerated and respected, but I'd be interested to see how the Taliban are, you know, dealing with somebody like al-Afghani and that trend within Islam. Is it, is it something that is, is repudiated? No, I would think that the, I, my sense is, and I'm not an expert on this, but I would sense that both the Dale Bondi aspect of, you know, the 
the Taliban and the Al Al Hadith folks are not really uh, interested in accommodating themselves to kind of modernizing modernizing Islam in kind of a doctrinaire sense. Obviously, as you know, we said is that they they have had to come to terms with the modern world because they can't not come to terms with the modern world. And you know, the thing about photographs and the thing about mobile phones and the internet and all those kinds of things that were absolutely forbidden during the 1990s, they have come to terms with those things. But I don't think that they they would do it in terms of saying that, you know, this is a part of what we have to do to kind of uh, shape our Islam to accommodate the modern world. They will go and do it, but I don't think they will probably cast it into any kind of a theological or doctrinaire sense. They probably just go and do it and say, you know, for, I mean, yeah, I used to remember that, you know, you couldn't have photographs of people, you know, uh, back in the 90s, you know, and how they would go and scratch out all these kinds kinds of things like that. You know, I I also, it would also be interesting to talk to people like the women who work at the United Nations and when they go into meetings and talk to Taliban officials now, do the Taliban officials go and turn their backs to them like they did in the 1990s? Or are they, you know, more more uh, willing to go and actually look at them face to face? So, I mean, I I, I, th I think that, you know, they have not really gone and I, they're still using the theology. They're still using the rather limited kind of version of Islam uh, to go and deal with the current situation. And they're not really reconciling that. And I suspect that there are going to be greater and greater tensions arising because of that. You're going to get some people who are going to look to oppose uh, the current Taliban leadership, and they're going to use ideological justifications. Look how far these people have come. Look at how they're allowing photographs. Look how they're, you know, do, allowing the internet. All these kind of things. And they'll be they'll be trying to go and use these kinds of, you know, quasi-religious justifications. Not so much from a religious point of view, but basically use them as a way to go and pursue their political agenda to gain power at the expense of the current nice. leadership. Now, I think you hit the nail uh, on the head with that one, because that's exactly what I was thinking. Let me ask you a question. Do you know who Muslim Foshanji is? To whom? Muslim Foshanji. No, I don't. Now, here's the thing. Now, this fella, I've asked, like, at least 100 Afghans. Now, these are Afghans who've been educated. They know their history. They are well-versed in the geopolitics uh, of the region and their own country. And I've asked them, do you know Muslim Foshanji? Funny thing is, none of them know who this guy is. Muslim Foshinji was, from what I have gathered and I read and corroborated with different sources, um, was an Afghan, a Persian leader based out of Foshanj, which is in Ghor. Now, when the Arabs came to Afghanistan and they brought Islam, he stood up against them. He was like, nope, I'm not going to accept your religion. What we have, we like it, we're going to keep it. And you've heard the popular adage that the victor writes, you know, the history is written by the victor. So when they finally defeated him, they killed him, his entire family, his entire bloodline. And the person who killed him, the Arab, he made a promise that I'm going to wipe your name off of history. And after that, you never hear any mentions of Muslim Boshinji in history books and school books and anything. 
The reason I'm mentioning this is because one of the things that I have realized with Taliban, with Mujahideen, with all of these groups is Islam to them is a political tool. It's a tool that they use to hurt the masses, to control the masses, and to increase their own follower base, and to increase their own influence and power and clout. When it comes to Islam, here's the thing. They don't listen to any of the Islamic scholars. Sayyid Jamal ad-Din Afghan being one of them. I can guarantee you that they don't even read about him. They don't. Most of them don't even know about who he was and what was he teaching. And he's not the only one. We have Ibn Sina, we have so many other people that they should be reading about, and they were pioneers. I mean, if my memory is not, if my memory is serving me right, Islamic culture and civilization was once thriving with education, with knowledge, with discoveries, with all these things. What happened to all of that? It's all gone. And now what you have is a bunch of extremists trying to tell you that you know you can use a phone but you cannot have your daughter go to school you can have you know a tv you can go outside with you can wear a western suit but you cannot have your um you know um women go out and work so all of this it's i don't think it's got anything to do with islam there have been arguments that the, all these groups are being financed they're being pushed they're being supported by parties that are actually using these groups to put Islam as a religion in a really, really horrible light. And they have been doing that uh, since 2002 until 2021. The number of atheists in Afghanistan was constantly on the rise. The number of the younger generation losing their beliefs and, you know, in family, in tradition, in religion, it kept getting higher and higher. And I could see it happening because when I was a kid, I would go to the mosque. I would go five times a prayer, and even when I was a kid. But the older I grew, you know, the older I got, the less I believed. And that was actually something that kept me always, you know, curious about why this was happening. And even now, the way that the Taliban are, you know, doing, keep, keep talking about Sharia law, how many of them do you really think know what Sharia law is? How many of them have their own definite or indefinite interpretations of it? How many of them bend it to satisfy their own political needs? Because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm no scholar, but my experience has taught me that at the end of the day, it's all about power. It's all about influence. It's all about, you know, their greed to be in power and to in, impose what they believe to be the right thing on everybody else. And that's been the core of the problems for Africans. Everybody who comes in, they want to impose something, whether it's, you know, Islam, whether it's religion, whether it's democracy, whether it's anything else. And I think Afghans are very far away from understanding what democracy is because they don't have the infrastructure for it, the, the base for it, the education to understand what democracy is. That needs to happen naturally through education and you know understanding and learning. But you know, like I said, I'm not a scholar. I just show what it's, you know, the way I experience life. Well, I, I think there is an element uh, that we haven't really talked about, and that's the extent to which outside parties are going and are instrumental in creating these kinds of issues that, that, that you're talking about. And, and I, I think, you know, you know, not mince any words, you know, I've basically put the focus on Pakistan and how Pakistan has gone and used religion to both 
divide and rule Afghans, uh, you know, going back to the 1980s during the Muja, during the jihad, and how they continue to go and do those kinds of things. Now, you know, the people that basically are responsible for that are the military. And, you know, the the military, the, we used to go and talk about the bearded mil officers and the Johnny Walker officers, you know, and that there are uh, perhaps there have always been very, very sophisticated uh, Afghan, uh, excuse me, Pakistani officers who are very Western oriented. They are, they are, are oftentimes trained in the UK or the United States or whatever, but they're very, very sophisticated and they are basically using Islam. You know, whatever their own personal beliefs are, they also recognize how Islam is an instrument for them to go and pursue their, uh, their national interests and doing so in Afghanistan, how they Basically, during the jihad, how they went and had the seven, you know, seven parties that kind of reflected the spectrum of what they saw was acceptable, but how they were going and primarily going and supporting Hekmat Yar, uh, that, you know, they were doing that, you know, I, they may go and certainly Zl Haq would perhaps go and talk about how it was, you know, his Islamic mission, you know, mandate to go and do those kinds of things. But it was basically a pursuit of Pakistani national interests at the expense of Afghans. And I think that has continued up to the to the present day, uh, doing these kinds of things, not in the interest of Islam, really, but in the interests of Pakistan and Pakistan's interest to ensure that uh, they have a client in Afghanistan who is beholden to them and to whom they go and control. Because I think they're, you know, deathly afraid. If they don't go and have a client who they can go and control, then it opens up Afghanistan to a India coming in and using their massive size uh, and economic uh position to go and get a client or get at least a, a, a government in Afghanistan that's going to pursue its own national interests. And to do that would be to the detriment of how Pakistan goes and perceives its national interests. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Pakistan clients, <laughs> you were uh, on assignment between 2009 and 2011 in Kabul with ISAF, right? So, and those those were some really tricky days because on one side you had the wave of the Taliban insurgency and I'm, I'm I'm using that word I'm not a fan but I'm using that was dying and and then after a few years after that it slowly started the resurgence. What was the mood like? What was your um what was your take at that time? Did you think that this is the end of the Taliban? This is when they're gonna have, get wiped out and we're not gonna have them anymore. Basically, uh, from 2009 to 2011, I was assigned to the embassy, but I was working over at ISAF. And I was working over at ISAF on what was called the force reintegration cell. And at the time, there was a view that the they were going to go, and with the surge that, that uh, Obama announced in 2009 to go and boost up the military presence, 
that they were also going to boost up the the uh, development aspects. And, and so you had a civilian surge and a military surge. And the idea would be that they would go and up the pressure and that they wanted to go and provide an off-ramp for fighters who respond who saw that the pressure was such that they didn't want to go and 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 be killed so basically provide up the military pressure but provide an off-ramp as you know talk about a freeway and an off-ramp an off-ramp mm -hmm. for fighters and so this was what was called a reintegration program and this is being pushed a lot by uh richard holbrook who was a special representative for afghanistan and pakistan uh, the view, and, and, and this was also something that had been done in Iraq, and when Stan McChrystal came in as a military commander, uh, they thought that they would go and try to go and replicate something with a program to go and help the fighters who wanted to reintegrate, to reintegrate. Now, there was also a dimension that there would also have to be reconciliation reconciliation involved somehow getting the Taliban to go and reconcile, to find some way to reconcile, to bring the Taliban back into Afghanistan. So from an ideological, from a political point of view, reconciliation was those kind of negotiations between the Taliban and the government, but then accompanying that would be the reintegration program. And so there, this was some a time of, I think, great optimism. I think that a lot of leaders thought that the pressure on the Taliban would be so great that they would go and see it as just not in their interest to go and continue to fight. And so, you know, this was kind of the plan going forward from 2009 to 2011. And uh, the Afghan government set up a, uh, a peace commission uh, and uh, to go and basically, ideally, the idea would be that this group that was not that was outside of government would be key to both the reconciliation negotiations, because, you know, the Taliban at that time were did not quite did not accept the legitimacy of the Afghan government. And so they were going to try to go and build up this council of people, uh, notable people uh, who could go and perhaps act uh, as a group to negotiate with the Taliban. And then this program also was overseeing the reintegration program. The reintegration program really didn't go anywhere. But nevertheless, the, the idea would be that uh, as we were moving to 2014 and the time when Ob President Obama said that we were basically going to turn over uh, the security fully to the Afghans, that this would be long enough to go and make the pressure such that the Afghans, you know, the resistance would want to go and reconcile. Uh, obviously, it didn't work out that way. And I think, you know, the uh, the Taliban basically felt that they, they could go and hold out. And in fact, they did. And uh, And the process up until 2014 about turning over the military uh, operations to the Afghans was proceeding, but uh, it, it had it had issues and didn't proceed as robustly as I think as the expectation was when President Obama announced in 2009 the 2014 uh, departure. Yeah, I remember the Transition Council Commission and who was leading it. Um, Another thing, um, 
just 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 looking for your thoughts and you know um it's it took 20 years trillions of do uh, dollars hundreds of thousands of lives both military and civilian and you know all the powerful countries in the world you know us nato and all these others what do you think went wrong I know it's it's a question that everybody asks and everyone has you know their own opinions but I'm I'm curious to know yours you've you've been there so it's it's I'm curious there 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 are so many things that we could go and and point to uh I think one of the one of the things I can point to is is how bad information, uh, bad information comes in, and bad information on in many different dimensions goes and uh, gets us going into directions, uh, gets uh, that that were were not productive or counterproductive, or you know they were productive in the sense that a lot of people became rich based on. Uh, the schemes that we had, because you know there was there, there was no there was no shortage of money. I uh, during 2000 and during the period I was there, 2009 to 2011, the U.S. government was spending two billion dollars a week, two mm -hmm. billion dollars a week in Afghanistan on various things. The amount of money was just incredibly massive. But you know there was so much misunder the the misunderstanding of the situation and I I think I can say you know bad information has a tendency to go and overwhelm good information and you know we there would be people out there who would have ex information about how to do things or how Afghan society was structured or how the police operate and stuff like that and then they would build these uh, they would build these programs and schemes on these kinds of things and then go and proceed. And once the program starts, uh, even if it's ill-conceived, it plays itself out. And, you know, these programs are always successful. You know, most of what was done in Afghanistan with all of the billions and billions of dollars from a I'm talking about a development or assistance kinds of schemes, they were all wonderfully successful. You know, because these programs are designed to go and report success. You go and, and, and spend the money and then, you know, you, you contract out a company to go and do something. And it's in everybody's interest from both the Congress and the uh, executive branch and the organizations that have taken these things on to report success. So you go from one success to another success to another success. Uh, once again, going and producing information which is not good information and so we're we were awash we were at sea in an ocean of bad information and that is what i mean that that is one of many many factors uh i think also the the commitment by president obama which was absolutely i think understandable that you know we were going to go and have a a date certain for us to end our our presence in there was done i think he thought that this would be a strong incentive for the afghans to get their act together but i think that there was a strong view and i certainly think this was something that's been expressed that president ghani had a view that the that that regardless of what the U.S. government said, the United States is not actually going to go and pull the plug. And I think this was a this was a view of him, but I think it was a view of many other people uh, throughout because, 
you know, you would call it a little bit uh, arrogant in the sense that, well, the Afghans, I mean, the Afghans thought that perhaps what's going on here is just too important and the Americans can't walk away from us, you know, or the, the West can't. Well, I would say the Americans, because when the Americans pulled the plug, everybody else yeah. left as, as well. So, you know, I there there are so many things. I think one of the things that's regrettable is that after what has happened in Afghanistan, there are a lot of exercises underway, which are called, we call in the United States, lessons learned processes, where, you know, you go in and you say, okay, what did we do wrong so that we will not go and make the same mistakes again? These are, in my rather, in my mind, these these are rather pointless exercises because the 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 cool kids, the people who are the leading edge in terms of foreign policy or in the military, they're all looking at the current threats. They're all looking at the tomorrow's threats. They can't be bothered by what went wrong in Afghanistan or whatever. And so you produce these lessons learned exercises, but they really don't go and have any impact on going and changing the way things are done. And I think the most dramatic example of that is in Vietnam. After Vietnam, the terrible debacle for the United States and Vietnam, there are all these lessons learned exercises. And boy, oh boy, we weren't going to repeat the same mistakes that we made in Vietnam. But, you know, you go and look at what happened in Afghanistan and almost to almost to a letter, we replicated the same kind of mistakes that we made in Vietnam. It's just it's just staggering when you read some of these things that came out, out after Vietnam and then you could just go and replace the word Vietnam for Afghanistan and it's equally applicable. So it's really it's I mean, there are a lot of other things that we can go and talk about. I don't think that the American uh, government, the way the government's set up with its budgetary process and these things, is something that would allow us to have a long-term involvement in a country. Uh, it just It's just not set up that way. Uh, and so there are many, many... I, I'm not optimistic that the government could do something like what we try to do in Afghanistan because of domestic political pressures are so great. I mean, we see this right now with Ukraine. You, you're seeing a constant voices in the U.S., in the United States that say, look, at Ukraine just isn't important. You know, we, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't be in there. We should be throwing more money at that. And and those same kind of dynamism was uh, with respect to Afghanistan, perhaps more so because Afghanistan is seen as more remote in terms of, you know, the Americans see it as a different kind of a society, a different place in the world. And Afghanistan would have never got any attention, uh, you know, if the Soviets hadn't gone and invaded and we weren't in the midst of the Cold War. And then if 9-11 didn't happen and it was seen as a place from where, I mean, if 9-11 if happened and they attacked Paris or Rome or the UK, I sincerely doubt that the United States would have made the commitment they would have to help their NATO allies. You know, I mean, NATO got involved in Afghanistan because the United States attacked in Article 5. Basically, all the NATO nations committed because they defined it as an attack of, uh, against against all. And so they got involved. But I would be hard-pressed to believe the United States would have made the vast resource commitment had 
another capital been attacked in uh, another country been attacked and not the United States. Yeah, no, it's it's quite interesting to see, you know, to explore explore alternate um, scenarios when it comes to these world events, these key world events. It's and you know the ramifications that they present. Um, speaking of lessons learned, what is the most valuable lesson that you learned from the war in Afghanistan? Oh. Well, you know, the interesting thing, I, you, if you had visited Afghanistan during the Republic era, you know, you saw that huge embassy, huge, huge embassy. I mean, it was, it was like a, a cancer in Wazirak Parhan. I mean, it spread from one side of the street to the other side of the street, and then it just grew and grew and grew and grew. I mean, you had thousands and thousands of civilians and thousands and thousands of military people all in Afghanistan and they were all you know they were all making sacrifices and compromises to be there they were they, they recognized a tremendous risk I mean many many people many military died and you actually had some civilians dying so you had all these people who were going there with the best the best of intentions I mean they were also at least the civilian side they were also being well compensated for it but they were going there with the idea that they were trying to go and do the right thing and they wanted you know they were working long hours and they were sacrificing their health and doing all these things and so you have all these people every place I, whether i was uh, you know in the countryside with a provincial reconstruction team you see the military out there everybody was working working very very hard trying to do the best and trying to do the right thing and yet you know we look at the consequences of of what happened you know you you have to disaggregate the you have to separate out what the individuals of commitment and the hard work and the desire of the individuals to go and do something from the kind of the the level of policy and you can get all you can throw all the people and all the money that you wanted something but if you don't have the policy right and once again i will go back to saying you know, you need the fundamental core of good information to go and build the right kind of policy. And for Afghanistan, you know, we just we 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 did not go and seek out and build on the good information. We sought and used the information that was presented to us as good information, but it wasn't. Uh, mm. bad information has a way of crowding out, as I said before, good information. Bad information goes and looks and talks about quick fixes. It goes and characterizes Afghanistan, the Afghan situation, in terms that we in the West understand. I, I mean, we can also hearken back to this notion of Orientalism, this kind of insidious characterization of the non-Western world uh, that has flavored uh, Western societies for many centuries, and we had our own Orientalist characterization of Afghanistan. And based on those bad information, as I said before, we proceeded in ways that looked to us like we were achieving what we thought we were achieving, but we were basically, uh, we were deluding ourselves and, you know, the Afghans were becoming very, very rich by our presence, were instrumental in going and telling us what we wanted to hear because it was in their interest for us to do so. And, you know, once again, 
I can understand their justifications. They were looking to go and improve their lives. And, and they also perhaps had the expectation that this was an open-ended kind of a commitment. And why not go and say what the the foreigners wanted to hear uh and, you know, to an extent, they probably also believed it themselves. I mean, I'm not saying that these people were being entirely delusional, but, you know, there was a sense that, you know, people told us what they knew we wanted to hear, and we were willing to go and enthusiastically embrace what they told us because it confirmed that we were good guys and we were on the right track and our money was being well spent. So... Oh, I know all about that, about all the yes men, yes sir, and the yes ma'ams, I've seen that. It's 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 dangerous. It's It puts you in, in places and in spots and forces you, encourages you to make decisions that they come back to haunt you sooner than later. Um, last question for today. Um, and, you know, what is your favorite Afghan food? I'm just going to keep the slide here. Well, I, I, you know, I. No you ask somebody, you ask somebody what is their favorite? Who is their favorite child? I mean, what the the glories of Afghanistan? I mean, there's there are so many wonderful things. I mean, the one of the I mean, you know, the, the non is unbeatable. There's nothing like that. But I mean, I just go, I go. The the melons the melons are, are are divine. The grapes, the variety of the grapes are just something which is just un, incomparable in my experience. Uh Pakistanis can have their mangoes, but you know, I just go and I just so enjoy uh you know the wonderful fruits of Afghanistan, the the melons that you can have, you know. It, out of season and things like that. Those are the things that I really in, enjoy. But the 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 other Afghan food, the cooked Afghan food, is wonderful. It's unique. I enjoy it. But you know, there's nothing that goes and makes me feel like I'm in heaven as much as when I have uh, Afghan melon or the Afghan grapes. Now you add me at the naan. <laughs> I haven't had the naan in almost two years now, and let me tell you, I still, every time I finish lunch or dinner, I think, you know, something's missing. I'm not full. I haven't had food. That naan just sort of rounded off everything. So, uh, well, I, I just have to say that, I mean, yes, the naan, but the whole ambiance around the naan, the naan bai, you go there, you get the fresh naan, you know, all of those kind of things. So it's not just the food itself. It's a whole kind of mm. I, gestalt of the naan which is something that even when you go to an afghan restaurant here and if they have a tandoor you don't have the sounds you don't have the smells you don't have the the whole the whole, the whole nine yards as i guess we say in the united states mm. it's not the same thing is it no nah. yeah no it we used to say that you know some of the street food in afghanistan the reason they're so tasty is because they're dirty if yeah. they're clean, they're not going to taste so good. And the naan, like you said, it's the, you know, the the, the naan bai with the way you'd never know if their hands are clean or not. 
but they bake the naans and then they're always good. And you buy one and you keep eating it until you get home and you realize you've eaten <laughs> half of it. I've done that a million times. Yeah. But yeah. um, now I'm, I'm this, this has definitely been enlightening and I'm looking forward to us talking more about things, about more specific things. If you're up for it, we could talk about, you know, specific periods of time, because what I've noticed is that you have a good, a great grasp of what happened throughout the years and the changes and the transformations. And it's something that a lot of Afghans, especially the Afghans born out of, after 90, the 90s, they have no idea. And Afghans and well, human beings by nature, they have very short term memories. They forget things very easily about, you know, who was who. I was in Kabul in 90, between 92 and 96, and I remember the, the horrors I saw. The rockets, the missiles, the dead bodies on the street, the, you know, the dismembered limbs. I remember them as if they were yesterday. And these new generation of Afghans, they've forgotten about that. They don't know what it was like between the 92 and the 96. They think everything was, you know, all roses and flowers. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, let me just go and say congratulations on getting Paragon off the ground and your report. And I look forward to Paragon becoming an important venue for, for substantive kind of discussions and analysis and reports on, on, contemporary Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan needs to have places like Paragon to be producing that kind of material. And I hope it becomes a, a, the focal, a focal point for those kind of things. And I, I welcome, I appreciate you reaching out to me so that I can go and contribute to your efforts to go and, uh, and give Paragon a greater prominence and importance. No, it's been definitely a pleasure.